Welcome to today's SNEB webinar um, presented by the Division of International Nutrition Education, the Dine Division. My name is Rachel Dager. I'm the Executive Director of SNEB and glad you're joining us for our presentation. Just some housekeeping to get us started. If you look in the GoToWebinar tool panel, um, there's actually two handouts. Uh, we have an introductory presentation and then um, Dr. Ray's presentation following that. So please download those and follow along with that material. We will take questions at the end of the webinar presentation. So please type your questions in the question block uh, so we can moderate those to our uh, panelists. And then uh, watch for an email um, that would probably be um, later this week, which includes a link to the recording, um, the CEU certificate that you're earning for your attendance. Um, and we've also identified a number of additional resources and handouts. Those will be in the follow-up email as well. And then once uh, the presentation ends and I close the webinar, um, there's a short survey and would appreciate your feedback on this session as well as any ideas for future webinars. So I'll go ahead and introduce our moderator today. Uh, Dr. Constance Giwa is Associate Professor in the Department of Nutrition and Food Studies at George Mason University. All right, thank you so much, Rachel. Um, uh, on behalf of the uh, D Division of International Nutrition Education of SNEB, and the chair of the division and the executive, I would like to welcome you to today's webinar. This is our first DINE-sponsored webinar in 2022. Uh, we look forward to a second webinar in June as well. Um, and with that, I'd like to pass it on to Dr. Shikeri, another DINE member, to share why we chose to focus on the topic, global non-communicable diseases for today's webinar. Uh, thank you very much, Constance. Uh, our topic for today is going to be global non-communicable disease burden, the prevention, management, and treatment uh, efforts. We are going to see efforts around the world. <clears throat> Next, please. These are some of the points that we are going to talk about. It's going to be just brief, less than five minutes as introduction to give uh, most of the time to Dr. Ray, who is our main presenter. Next, please. Non-communicable diseases, or also known as chronic diseases, include the cardiovascular, uh, cancers, chronic respiratory diseases, and diabetes. These four groups account for 80% of all premature non-communicable diseases deaths worldwide, with the cardiovascular diseases being the top of the <clears throat> deaths, uh, the annual deaths worldwide, and the least being diabetes. Next, please. Um, why we are focusing on low-middle-income countries? Because three-quarters of the global NCD deaths happen in these low-middle-income countries, affecting ch uh, children, adults, and older adults, ranging between the age of 30 and 69. And 85% of these pretty much happen in the low-middle-income countries. 
Next, please. Based on the annual data and the current situation are becoming epidemics, and there are several factors associated with the uh, are known as risk factors for NCDs. The, uh, some of the modifiable factors include the unhealthy diet, physical inactivity, obesity, overweight, and alcohol uh, consumption. Next, please. Why I'm presenting this is uh, because of COVID-19, and this is one of the issues that we are going to raise, that today is going to highlight this point during his presentation later on, the impact of COVID-19 and the reallocation of funds and how uh, people were focusing on uh, non-communicable diseases, trying to uh, reduce the burden, and all of a sudden there had been a pandemic that affected the whole that led to the allocation of resources mostly in the WHO Southeast Asian region, accounting up to 25% of reallocation of funds. Next, please. Uh, Worldwide, if there had been elimination for these non-communicable diseases, there could be a gain of more than $350 billion in preventing, treating chronic diseases such as heart disease and cancer. And uh, automatically, these are going to lead to saving 8 million lives. And that's why uh, the topic is very important and eliminating NCDs is going to improve and save the lives of several many people. Next, please. Uh, finally, there are different ways to uh, fight NCDs, and the most important part is the nutrition education, and that is the focus of this presentation, focusing on prevention, management, and treating of NCDs. Thank you very much, and uh, with you, Dr. Ray. Thank you, Ala. I would now like to introduce our main speaker, Professor Shumantra Shumon Ray. Uh, Professor Shumantra is a licensed medical doctor and a registered nutritionist with special interest in cardiovascular disease prevention and nutrition education in health systems. He is the Director of Research at the University of Cambridge and co-lead for the Food, Nutrition and Education Work Package for the Transforming India's Green Revolution by Research and Empowerment for Sustainable Food Supplies program, also known as TIGR2ESS, which is led from Cambridge and supported by UK Research and Innovations Global Challenges Research Fund. Professor Ray holds a fractional personal chair appointment as the Professor of Global Nutrition, Health and Disease at Ulster University, and Honorary Visiting Professorial Appointments at the Imperial College London in the UK, and the University of Wollongong in Australia. He is the Founding Chair and Executive Director of the Need for Nutrition Education Innovation Program, also known as NNED-PRO 
welcome, Professor Ray. Thank you very much, uh, Constance, uh, Echelam, and Rachel, as well as Toyin in the background. Um, can you see my screen? Yes, we can. Uh, bear with me. Sorry, one second. Apologies. Can you see my screen now? Yes. Um, thank you once again for inviting me to do this webinar. So I've been a proud member of SNEB for a decade and a half. And more recently, I've been part of the Division of International Nutrition Education. And today we're going to try and weave three different things together after Elam has very nicely uh, set the stage for us. And really, from nutrition and NCDs, we're going to talk a little bit about nutrition education in the wake of COVID-19, and also a piece of innovation known as the mobile teaching kitchens. So I'm going to divide our presentation into four parts, um, tell you a bit about who we are and what we do, and our links with SNEB. Uh, an overview of nutrition and its position in non-communicable diseases and how nutrition efforts um, in the wake of COVID-19 have actually been bridging non-communicable and communicable diseases. And then a pandemic-proofed case study and a piece of nutrition education innovation which seems to have withstood the pandemic and much more. So a little bit about us. We're a, a, an international and interdisciplinary think tank headquartered in Cambridge, but we work across 12 regional networks, and that enables us to reach about 40 countries. We essentially focus on training, implementation, classical research, but across all of those addressing inequalities. And what we try to do in all our work is really bring forth evidence-informed knowledge, particularly for capacity building. We have a number of subsidiaries, the BMJ Nutrition Journal, um, and uh, a few other key organizational initiatives that I'll tell you a bit about in a moment. Three in particular um, that I'd like to highlight. So one is the International Knowledge Application Network Hub in Nutrition. And I hope that all of you will take time to go on to this web link, ICANN.global, and register for free, because this is where we host living, breathing evidence collections, which are regularly updated based on the feedback of end users. And uh, there are two very important evidence collections relevant to the topic of today's webinar, one on nutrition and COVID-19, and the other one on nutrition and cardiometabolic disease. One of the other things, aside from promulgating this network hub, that we do across uh, all of the regions that we work in is look at the status of nutrition education policy for healthcare practice, particularly curriculum policy, and also look at transferable elements of what we call the mobile teaching kitchen, which I'll come back to. We offer quite a lot of continuing professional development, and one of our main links with SNEB is really through the International Academy of Nutrition Educators, 
and hopefully you'll all be able to go on to uh, the web link and have a look at uh, the mentoring scheme and various other pieces of training that the Academy offers, including a summer school, an annual summit, and opportunities to publish. But really, um, one of the reasons for our existence was, before the pandemic, to tackle nutrition and non-communicable diseases. So by that, we refer to all chronic conditions which don't result from an acute infection process, diseases which have a prolonged course and don't resolve spontaneously. And of course, uh, we can think about different organ systems, um, whether that's cardiovascular, um, diabetes in terms of multi-organ involvement, respiratory and also cancer. And of course, nutritional status impacts all of these and unhealthy diet is a key determinant. But we cannot look at diet in isolation without also looking at some of the co-determinants such as tobacco, alcohol and addictions, and of course, the other pillars of what we now call lifestyle medicine, uh, including physical activity, sleep and uh, mind management. So all of these together form a complex etiological meshwork where we tend to look at how we can control further factors, study the impact of diet, see what works and then change the default. But why and how did we end up here in the first place? And I'm sure many will be familiar with Barry Popkin's global nutrition transition and the fact that we're living in an age where two evolutionary patterns have really coincided. So we saw nutritional deficiencies emerge, uh, in fact, uh, a few centuries ago, and non-communicable disease and the diseases of nutritional oversupply emerged mostly over the past century. However, both of these patterns have coincided as there is a resurgence also in the diseases of nutritional deficiency. And this has led to the coexistence of under and over nutrition. And by under nutrition, we mean not just protein and energy, but also micronutrient deficiencies. And of course, other associated chronic diseases or comorbidities, which either arise from um, the type of malnutrition that we're considering, or in fact, which are exacerbated by malnutrition. What makes it a little bit more complex is that not only can this double burden exist in the same communities, but also through the life course in the same individuals. And this is therefore a challenge to policy and also allocation of resources. But when we look at diet um, in particular, sorry, can you see my screen? Yes, we can see it. I can see it. Apologies. So when we look at diet in particular and the global burden of disease, we can see the number of deaths and disability adjusted um, life years and age standardized mortality against key dietary indicators is really quite staggering. So things like 11 million deaths um, attributed to dietary risk factors, but it's not just the mortality, it's the morbidity and loss of livelihood that comes from all of this. 
again, break that down into elements such as sodium, whole grain and fruit intake, and still the numbers are quite staggering. Processed foods, cardiovascular disease and mortality. Professor yes. Shimon, uh, your screen, it's not moving. You're still on the double nutrition button. My apologies once again. Can you see my screen now? Yeah. Now it's moving, but yeah, when you show the whole, uh, okay, that's better. Thank you. Okay. So, um, Really, diet is the largest contributor not only to overall mortality, but also cardiovascular mortality. And here the intake of ultra-processed foods has been implicated, particularly using the new NOVA classification. We can see that um, in the Western world, ultra-processed foods can account for about 60% of total daily energy intake. And um, really, this pattern is something that is being transmitted across the world. And uh, this is really a Kaplan-Meier for the incidence of consumption of ultra-processed foods and increased um, hazards for all-cause mortality. But at a practical level, and particularly where nutrition education can be quite impactful, are the different elements of cardiometabolic syndrome. So most of the world's population lives in countries where the metabolic syndrome is rising at an alarming rate. So there are a number of dysfunctions that coexist in relation to glucose, tolerance, uh, lipids, hypertension, and also obesity or central adiposity. And the individual strategies that have been used are weight loss, low saturated fat diets, physical activity, and regulating salt consumption, alongside medical management. But again, even aside from the metabolic syndrome, we also have the silent disease of hypertension. And uh, here really we have multi-organ involvement and we don't actually see the symptoms or signs of the disease until there has been quite a lot of pathology. So whole diet approaches, returning to what we can do as nutrition educators, have been shown to be effective. So the dietary approaches to stopping hypertension represent, for example, a pattern of dietary consumption where diets rich in fruits and vegetables um, and low-fat dairy products with reduced saturated and total fat form two-thirds of the core of a pattern which can be emulated internationally, not in exactly the same way but to uh, the effect of about two-thirds adherence, which shifts the risk um, ratios for diet-related cardiometabolic disease. And a number of studies that have been done, including some which we've done, have shown that we only need about two-thirds concordance to a dietary pattern like DASH um, or any other similar pattern um, to begin to see tangible effects. And of course, sodium intake and body weight independent of this need to be looked at. So really, to summarize this piece of the presentation, um, we know that diet remains a major contributor, not just to non-communicable diseases, but the overall 
global burden of disease. And we know that cardiometabolic syndrome is highly prevalent uh, with multiple components, uh, each of which are independent risk factors, but together the risk is synergistic. And each of these can be prevented or managed. And we also know that there are a number of effective strategies, um, particularly when all of these strategies are packed into nutrition education um, and adherence around um, reformulated dietary patterns. But really, there's an overlay on top of all of this, and that is the challenge of nutrition inequalities. Um, these are just some statistics from the 2020 Global Nutrition Report, which exemplify the double burden in countries which are lesser resourced, with um, not only high overweight and obesity levels, but fundamental problems like stunting alongside micronutrient deficiencies. These are driven by many factors. And of course, according to the Global Nutrition Report, more data is always needed, but we do have enough data to act. And that is what takes me to the next part of the presentation, which is really the fact that two years now of battling a global pandemic has done a couple of things. So on one hand, Ahlam mentioned at the outset that it has redistributed um, resources from non-communicable to communicable disease management in public health at large, and that also includes nutrition education. But the other thing that it has actually done is it has bridged the gap uh, across non-communicable and communicable diseases because nutrition inequalities have actually been shown up as the number one determinant of those at-risk populations that have received the highest impact from COVID-19. And this has actually provided an opportunity for nutrition education to straddle these two sides of non-communicable and communicable, but also to actually focus on those populations who are most marginalized and at highest risk, because those are indeed the populations that are the biggest contributors to the COVID-19 um, uh, morbidity and mortality uh, statistics. So what we did in terms of actions um, by way of using nutrition education for preventative as well as interventional strategies is to set up a global nutrition and COVID-19 task force. So we have really pulled together um, a number of colleagues from research, practice and public health um, and set up a series of dedicated microsites with a strong focus on public health, nutrition and food security and uh, also a series of digital communication materials. Uh, aside from this, um, we've collaborated with BMJ Nutrition and with a range of different research groups that we have been working with in the non-communicable disease space to quickly pivot and look at uh, COVID-19 and the fact that all of the same elements of nutrition education that we have promulgated for non-communicable disease are equally applicable 
in a slightly uh, repackaged form for COVID-19. And so this has led to the formulation of guidance, um, the collation of guidelines, and very importantly, new research and uh, a series of almost 40 original research papers which have greatly added to the evidence base on COVID-19 and nutrition. So this is uh, just a snapshot of nutrition resources which are updated on a monthly basis, um, uh, particularly looking at um, all aspects of nutrition and COVID-19 from primary prevention, so health promotion and specific protection, to early diagnosis, prompt intervention, and also disability limitation and rehabilitation. Um, so as you can imagine, this is a volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous environment. But interestingly enough, most of the things which we knew around nutrition education uh, for non-communicable diseases are applicable with some extrapolation for COVID-19 and communicable diseases at large. So we started with the vitamin D story, uh, particularly focusing on the UK where we're headquartered. Um, and then we quickly moved on to actually looking at, during the first waves of the pandemic, nutritional parameters and outcomes in patients admitted to intensive care. Um, we consistently found uh, convincing associations and clues towards causal inference linking vitamin D status with outcomes, and also uh, to an extent, other micronutrients like uh, selenium and zinc. We then looked more specifically at um, partaking in government-led evidence reviews so that national recommendations could be uh, changed for the majority of the population, but special recommendations could be put into place for those at higher risk. And then that led us on to the fact that obviously vitamin D does not sit in isolation. And therefore, we were looking at the real-time experiences of organizations involved in emergency food responses, gaps in provision, and really how widening health inequalities and nutrition insecurity could be targeted using nutrition education of health professionals, policymakers, as well as the public. And once again, um, channelizing those resources um, that were reallocated for the pandemic to link back to nutrition education for non-communicable diseases to remove the underlying burden of comorbidities that worsen COVID outcomes. So as uh, dozens and dozens of research articles accrued. We also um, put together simple and um, easily accessible blogs. So from combating COVID-19 in a primary prevention setting, which has been read by more than 13,000 individuals to date, to ICU nutrition management in the front line, and also how government obesity strategy is something that now needs to learn from the pandemic um, and particularly from the impact of structural inequalities. Um, we continue to run a series of webinars um, which are freely available in recorded form on microsites and we have an evidence algorithm 
which enables us to depict not only how the evidence base is moving, but also the quality and strength of different aspects of the evidence so that practitioners can actually make decisions based on judgment combined with strength of evidence. Um, we've looked at the data um, in surveillance systems and how good those are at picking up some of the gaps in food production access choices and nutritional status. And this has led to a series of recommendations with the Swiss Re Institute on um, global uh, data needs for surveillance systems, which are sensitive to uh, nutrition uh, intervention needs, particularly in the wake of this interplay between non-communicable diseases and COVID-19. And of course, um, we have been focusing more recently on long COVID and nutrition, and this is an area that we are looking at very closely because once again, this is where untreated non-communicable diseases with the overlay of um, less attention to non-urgent clinical encounters during the pandemic has actually exacerbated those diseases, but also is feeding into long COVID for a number of individuals. So in order to raise awareness around all of these issues, we ran a series of campaigns uh, using social media between May and December of last year. So we created a campaign strategy by looking at epidemiological data to guide urgency, prioritize efforts, and eight global regions were covered, um, so possibly about 32 countries. And here are just a few examples um, of what our campaign pieces looked like. We received quite a lot of feedback. Um, We received quite a lot of feedback, um, particularly to say that um, all of this evidence has been not only highlighted, but um, it has been helpful in preventing the spread of misinformation. And of course, we've had to consider not only nutrition education and isolation, but also collate accompanying evidence in public health education measures at large. And really, that's a reminder that nutrition education always sits in the wider milieu of public health measures. So here are all of the people behind the scenes who've made that possible. Um, but we also um, have done another thing during the pandemic, and that is really um, pandemic-proofed a case study of a nutrition education innovation that we had started a couple of years before COVID-19, and I'd like to mention this particularly because this is the International Division of Nutrition Education, and many of the people that we would be serving in a low to middle income country or de deprivation um, context as nutrition educators would actually need models of intervention that are innovative, address communicable and non-communicable diseases, and are pandemic proofed. So this particular one is a tool to improve diet and health outcomes in underserved communities and really focuses on empowering communities with skills and knowledge. So from the global task force and high level 
collation of information and research studies to ground level participatory action research and impact. So what underpins all of this? So here are a couple of sets of recommendations that you may well be familiar with. So from the FAO, the SOFI report, which reminds us that um, we not only need to think about healthy diets as nutrition educators, um, and uh, not only in the context of the pandemic, but more generally, we need to think about healthy diets at low cost. And the other thing that the WHO double duty actions reminds us about is the fact that we need to think about all of this in ways that are different and that tackle malnutrition in all of its forms. Because really, if some of the approaches that are in vogue at the moment were uh, very effective, then after 20 years of programmatic interventions, we would not be seeing the um, static prevalence and increase in incidence that we are in terms of diet and global burden of disease. So the mobile teaching kitchen model is one that looks to tackle all of those challenges and food insecurity as well as malnutrition, particularly by engaging and co-creating using person-centered design um, and disrupting this vicious cycle of intergenerational poverty, not just by giving nutrition education, but by creating champions for culinary health education and micro entrepreneurs who would serve up not only low cost healthy meals, but meals that come with health education as a side dish. So how did we do this? Um, using a see one, do one, teach one model, where dietitians and doctors work together initially on a needs assessment, local volunteers or community workers are then trained, and then mobile teaching kitchen champions are trained to become knowledge disseminators, and then there's this reverse funnel approach to cascading uh, knowledge uh, on everything from food hygiene and cooking skills to understanding the importance of a nutritionally complete diet to the retention and onward transmission of knowledge. So this was successfully piloted in the city of Golkata in two urban slums, one registered and one unregistered, um, just to compare the baseline inequalities. Um, and this is now being promulgated in other places. And I'm not going to play this video now, but you will receive a, a link to this. So do have a look later. We're now scaling this with a large charity called Calcutta Rescue to six other slums, particularly taking the transferable elements of nutrition education and focusing on the combined impact of existing NCDs plus COVID risk that has uh, been superimposed on top of that. So with one single mobile unit and just about six champions, 100 meals can be prepared and sold to members of the public in one day. And this is a flipped model because these champions can impact all echelons of society, sell meals and serve up health education to um, you and I or anyone from blue collar to white collar, any collar, impacting 24,000 members of public in a year with simply six change agents. Um, and this, if scaled systematically and with the right data instruments behind it, 
can significantly alleviate malnutrition and touch the global burden of disease in relation to diet. So this has already been adapted in a rural agricultural area of India and also um, is now being adapted in inner city Delhi. Um, there are 10 candidate countries that are looking to adapt this. Um, in Mexico, phase one has already taken place. So the mobile teaching kitchen has completed six months uh, in the city of Mexico. Um, there is an adaptation being prepared in Scotland and one by the NIH intramural program on teaching kitchens in the US um, in partnership with um, Dartmouth College and um, located in the vicinity of Howard University. So nutrition education delivered through training using practical demonstrations and verbal communication can also get round literacy barriers because with all of the best will in the world and our knowledge from research in non-communicable diseases, and more recently, as we've seen with the task force, new research on COVID-19, this ultimately needs to be synthesized into formats that navigate literacy barriers, either real literacy barriers, health literacy barriers, or even nutrition literacy barriers. Some of the insights for policies on health promotion and literacy is that this approach can promote a healthier food environment. Um, it can deliver through healthy food options, and in this case, 50 very carefully formulated menu templates which are nutritionally complete, um, build the foundations of how people can seek longer-term food security by making the right food choices which are healthy but low cost, uh, reach those most affected by poor dietary outcomes. But also there is a pedagogical element to this that can impact cognitive flexibility. And our measurements show that mentalizing skills, uh, which is really a measure of resilience in communities and livelihoods can improve with this sort of intervention. So here's a full paper on this um, in BMJ Nutrition that you can read. Um, and one important thing is we use our own school ambassadors to actually also engage children in the community, which was incredibly insightful, particularly as we think of the mother and child as a unit, but very often uh, the insights come from the children. So really that, brings me to the end of the formal presentation and to show you um, just some of the key champions from the original prototype mobile teaching kitchen who in 2018 um, were refugees and potentially begging for a living to uh, make their way through to becoming not only micro entrepreneurs and culinary health educators but the architects of this popular cookbook that was launched at the Cambridge University Science Festival last year. Very happy to take any questions. Thank you so much, Professor Ray, for a very interesting and engaging presentation. Um, let me look if there are any questions. Please feel free to post your questions now and any comments uh, to Dr. Ray. Let's see, there is a question. Okay, so there is a question from, do that, 
Just give me a minute to get this. Okay, so our first question goes, did the nutrition education also provide some means of food access, such as education on local food production? Yes. So um, I'm guessing this question refers to the Mobile Teaching Kitchen initiative, but I'll also refer to the COVID-19 work. So in the COVID-19 work, we've been looking um, at um, all of the different step ladders in terms of food production, food access, food environment, food choices, nutritional status, and health outcomes. So what we've been trying to do is look at the evidence um, that would support um, uh, policymakers to actually um, reduce barriers in all of these areas that would support practitioners to give the right education and advice to the populations that they serve. Coming to the Mobile Teaching Kitchen Initiative, which is very much at the other end of the spectrum and very much grassroots, um, there what we have done is look at education, but also skills training in how to operate within a fixed budget and a fixed geographical radius um, and how to source low cost, locally available foods um, that still form a nutritionally complete meal and 50 such templates, each of which has 100% of the RDA for micronutrients for the day in a single meal, about 70 to 80% of the protein requirements for um, a reference individual from the given population, um, and about um, uh, 40 to 50% of the energy requirements, albeit uh, low saturated fat and lower glycemic index. And of course, with attention to um, fiber content as well. So doing this um, took um, three years, um, and particularly during the lockdown, um, a lot of the conceptual education and training on how to make these choices in terms of sourcing foods, ingredients, and then the use of the right cooking skills, all of these elements could be strengthened, particularly in the core of change agents uh, by using digital training and um, by using COVID safe gatherings when that was possible, whilst the mobile unit was not in service. And so in some ways, um, the pandemic has allowed a recess to strengthen that aspect of education. The rural adaptation of that model has also gone further in looking at growing where possible um, some of those ingredients and foods uh, which can go directly into the core menu templates. Thank you. I have a quick follow-up question on that now that you mentioned the rural. Um, so I see this model, and I, and I could be wrong. Uh, it seems to, it was tested in an urban setting. How do you think it's going to take off in a rural setting, and especially in places where you find that in rural places there's a lower population, people are of lower income, and they live far and wide from yes. each other? And that is exactly the challenge that we have been grappling with for 
about three years now working in rural Punjab. So we're working in an area where um, there is a lot of agriculture, but the people we're working with don't necessarily, they, they tend to be women who don't necessarily have um, decision-making um, authority on land use or even on use of resources. So one of the things that we've been encouraging is the use of micro agriculture and kitchen gardens and pooling of um, foodstuffs in order to bring together the ingredients. In terms of how the micro enterprise would work, we've been using pop-up kitchens, um, particularly in higher population density areas and pre-pandemic, particularly around events and festivals. Um, and with a mobile unit, um, the idea would be that there would be a larger catchment of rural areas or villages from which um, champions would operate a mobile unit in the nearest city, which sometimes would be anything up to four hours away. Um, so all of this um, has more logistic challenge around it. And therefore, the microenterprise um, potential is, is one where it needs more than one method of microenterprise, and it needs to look beyond the mobile units um, and really um, uh, delivery services to local households has been another avenue that we've been exploring. Um, so you're absolutely right that there is a rural urban difference, and I think that that would be the case in um, uh, any country, really, to a greater or lesser extent. Thank you. There is a question from Lynn. Uh, is the cookbook available? If so, how can it be accessed? So there's a QR code, I think, um, in the PDF of the slides. If you look at the last page, that QR code provides a link to the cookbook. I think there is a subscription that's needed for it, which is quite nominal. Um, but what that provides is um, really 50 menu templates um, with many different recipes inside it, each of which is nutritionally disaggregated. So there are nutrition value tables um, attached with every single dish. And so that also allows the mixing and matching of dishes between menu templates where dishes have nutritional equivalents. So a similar cookbook um, is not out yet, but has been produced um, in, uh, is in draft at the moment, produced in Spanish for a Mexican population. And one is in Genesis for a um, more pan-British population and also um, another one which focuses on um, diets in the tribal belt of India where, again, um, uh, food practices are very different. There's a lot of foraging and therefore ingredients are different. So there are about three other very different um, versions of this cookbook concept in Genesis, but the kind of underlying principles uh, are the uh, are, are quite similar. Thank you. There's another question for you. 
You mentioned the double burden of malnutrition. Can you also comment on the triple burden where people have a healthy weight but are malnourished? They are often missed and only caught if a nutrition screening is done, even just a food recall. So actually, this may be semantics, but um, until um, 2019, we too were using the term triple burden. But um, uh, in December 2019, the WHO published a Lancet series on double burden and double duty actions. And therefore, from January 2020, the term triple burden is no longer used by UN organizations, and we have realigned our classification accordingly. The reason is because um, very when we refer to undernutrition um, in the double burden, we're talking about undersupply of both macro and micronutrients. And when we refer to overnutrition, we are referring to the uh, un oversupply of those nutrients that actually affect energy balance in a way that impacts um, weight and obesity in particular. Um, but the reality is um, that, as the person who asked the question pointed out, uh, you can have um, protein energy malnutrition with or without micronutrient deficiencies. You can also have overweight and obesity with or without micronutrient deficiencies. So in terms of our approaches, we, even though we may call it the double burden to be in tune with the double duty actions of the WHO, um, what we mean is that we are always looking at these three axes of uh, uh, protein energy malnutrition, micronutrient deficiencies, and also um, energy balance uh, in terms of overweight and obesity. Thank you. Um, as I'm waiting for other questions and comments, please continue to share. Those are really good questions. Please continue to post your questions or comments for Dr. for Professor Ray. I have a question. Um, you did talk about the resources, COVID-19 and nutrition resources that have been developed, and you're sharing amongst multiple countries, practitioners, populations. I'm curious. To what extent have these resources been used by those in uh, low uh, income nations? Yeah. So, um, firstly, all of our resources have been translated into multiple languages. Um, so, the key resources, particularly the our ten point guide on um, prevention of um, uh, nutrient deficiencies in the wake of COVID-19. So I mentioned that there have been 13,000 readers. Uh, actually, that's for the English language version. We've also translated that into 12 other languages. But of course, we have been limited to focusing on the countries that we can reach through our regional networks. And those range between 30 to 40 countries. And we all know that uh, that's only a fraction of the the 200 countries in the world. So we have been asking practitioners in those countries to disseminate further, but the uptake has been um, fairly high in um, our target low to middle income countries. 
particularly where we have used um, influencers for secondary dissemination, where very often we may have been incognito as an organization, but our materials, our messages, and the key points have been uh, really put out by uh, social media influencers who um, have not thousands, but millions of followers. Thank you. All right. Um, I don't see any question posted yet, but I want to post this to members, those in attendance. Um, this has been a really interesting and engaging discussion and presentation. I am curious from those in attendance, what are some of the resources that you have used or you've seen being used in the nations, in the countries where you work um, that you'd like to share with us? I don't know that, Richard, if you could make it possible for those who are interested in sharing to be able to talk. Is that possible? Yeah, actually, if someone wants, I think you can do a raise your hand feature and I can turn the microphones on. If someone wants to try that. Okay. Would I be able to see if somebody has raised their hand? You should. If you look at the attendee list, we should get a little icon if they, um, if they want attention or yeah. if they want to <laughs> type their name in the question block, I can, um, Turn the microphone on. Okay. Don't want to turn the microphone on if someone's not ready to talk. <laughs> okay. I see. I, I don't see any hands raised, but I see a question mark. Um, I don't well, know what those, that means. That means they've asked a question. Okay. <laughs> okay. I, I could maybe, I was going to say, I see Stacia, she, who is usually has a good discussion. If yes. she would like to talk, I can turn her microphone off. I think Stacia, yeah, Stacia might be able to tell what might be happening in Malawi. Yes, please. Oh, I was trying there to figure out how to ask, and now it's on. Thank you. I just turned you on, <laughs> Stacia. Welcome. I was trying to figure out how to raise my hand. Thank you, everyone. Um, Shumatra, that was such a great presentation and I've downloaded it and I'm excited to go through more of the links. Um, I was the one who asked about the double and triple burden and I will definitely read more on that as well. I, of course, we don't have to agree with the UN um, and I, I may not, but I, I agree with the way you explained it. As long as we go into depth, I do find a lot of people um, take the double burden and only think of weight. So we just would need to re-educate people on uh, including people with a healthy weight can also be malnourished. So as you were speaking, Sumatra, um, there were several places, uh, and I may follow up with you afterwards, where Malawi has started working on NCDs and nutrition education. 
several of us have asked for this for years, especially as the sun movement came in and took everyone's attention away from nutrition to only nutrition for one subgroup of people in one situation. We were trying to keep the banner raised for all forms of nutrition for all people. Nutrition is important for everyone at every life stage. So I really like your approach. And one thing I'm going to focus on, um, I did send materials to the organizers so i think they could include those in a in a follow-up email for people who are interested but i really liked your each one teach one do one each one do one to teach one um we do the same yeah, thing here in malawi we have governing structures with with a two-way pyramid scheme. So having that same um, diagram that you showed, but with two-way arrows, because we use it for dialogue. And I know as you spoke, you said we've gotten feedback. So I know the arrows go in both directions by yeah. the way um, you were speaking, but we find that to be extremely useful. And going back to Alam's opening um, session as well, talking about making sure this is multi-sectoral. So I'm in the agriculture sector. Our two-way pyramid schemes specifically try and get in women, men, adolescents, youth, forestry officers, water officers, you know, everyone that you can think of in the nutrition value chain to show that representation. So those were kind of three of my comments, um, a little bit on the triple burden. Uh, we do have some materials on NCDs and nutrition education, and then a little comment on the governance. Thanks for giving me some time. Over. Thank you, Stacia. Yes, we did receive the materials, and we're going to include them in the list of resources that we're going to send out to all the attendees, all those who registered for the for the webinar. Thank you. Constance, if I could just make a quick uh, comment in response to Sasha. So um, I didn't go into detail, but the see one, do one, teach one is absolutely a two-way process of um, participatory um, action research. There are some measurements which are done at each stage, um, which are quantitative in terms of nutrition knowledge, attitudes and practices, but also measures of cognitive flexibility and mentalizing skills. Um, but we also have qualitative measures, um, which are usually done through uh, accompanying focus groups with the women participants, children's focus groups, and also male member focus groups. We also do focus groups with um, uh, key um, change agents in the community, some of whom are not really change agents, but they may be the ones who may impede change as well. So there are lots of different bubbles in terms of the interventions, the interactions, but also the measurements um, around that see one, do one, teach one process. Thank you. Thank you so much, Professor Ray. Um, it's now 1.59 p.m. Um, I think uh, we'll pass this on to Rachel to close. And before I do that, uh, I want to thank all presenters. Dr. Ray, I want to thank you. I know you're traveling all over the world, but we were able to make this work for us. So we are truly uh, grateful for that. And I, I know it's very late wherever you are right now. <laughs>
Um, uh, please look out. This is our first webinar for this year. Look out for our second webinar. We are hoping to have that in sometime in June 2022, and we'll be sending out the information in a timely manner. Thank you. Back to you, Rachel. Excellent. Yes, thank you for the presentation. Uh, and before we closed, I wanted to um, show you the resource on the SNEB website where there's information about IAIN that uh, Dr. Ray mentioned. SNEB members are able to join this organization at a discount, a 50% discount on their dues. Um, so if it's you know, SNEB.org, it's actually under the membership tab. Um, and you can find out more about this organization that we uh, partner together with. Uh, consequently, their members are able to uh, join SNEB and get discounts on webinars. So encourage you to uh, take a look at that on the website. And then uh, just a reminder, when I close the webinar in a moment, there'll be a short survey. Appreciate your feedback on this session as well as ideas for future webinars. And then watch for an email, probably well, let's let's say maybe hopefully this week, but it sounds like we've got quite a few resources to gather and get out to you. So I want to make sure we have all those links included uh, in the follow up webinar. And then also just a reminder to look on the SNEB website. Um, we have quite a few webinars scheduled here over the next uh, two or three weeks, including Journal Club, um, which will be back on the 28th. Uh, and then uh, we are still working on planning the 22 conference. Um, there will be an in-person meeting in Atlanta, Georgia, the end of July, and also virtual attendance options as well. Um, and we hope to have registration open by the first week of April. Um, the abstract presenters are getting their notifications um, this week. So a lot of excitement around um, showing you the programming and the options to participate in the annual conference. So we hope to see you back online soon and possibly in person uh, later this summer. Thank you. Thank you, Rachel.